Welcome, tennis fans, to KickServeRadio.com, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, featuring former world number one and seven-time Grand Slam champion Matt Spielander, former Texas Longhorn, two-time All-American Johnny Levine, and your host of KickServeRadio.com, Andy Zoden. KickServeRadio.com is presented to you by SquadPod, committed to protecting your privacy and your business. Communicate safely with SquadPod. And Bracket, spelled B-R-A-C-K-I-T, an interactive mobile game where being aligned with celebrities and athletes has a nice payoff for you and charity. Take it away, AZ. And take it away, I will. Welcome, everybody. KickServeRadio.com. Again, we are part of Tennis Channel Podcast Network, and we've got a great show. We're going to be joined by the one and only Patrick Rafter, two-time U.S. Open champion, two-time Wimbledon singles finalist, and one of the great Aussies, one of the great guys in tennis of all time, and we're super excited to have him. We're also going to be hearing from uh, a great Scott, uh, Mark Milne, who has got a new scoring system uh, for tennis called 30-30 Tennis. You'll be hearing all about that. That's one of the new scoring systems that is designed to quicken the pace of matches. There are several others out there, but Mark will tell you about his idea, which is pretty cool, and he does so in a very Scottish accent. But in the meantime, the show, KickServeRadio.com, our team, includes the great Mats Vlander. He is the seven-time Grand Slam champion, former number one in the world, as well as former two-time Texas Longhorn All-American Johnny Levine. And boys, it was a real interesting go of it out in Monte Carlo, the start of the clay court season. And I'll start with you, Matt, because you were looking for what was going to happen between Novak Djokovic and Rafael Nadal when they played in this final so that we would see who would have a leg up on going into the French Open. Not only do they not meet each other in the final, neither one of them make it anywhere near the final. How surprised were you to see Daniel Evans beat Novak Djokovic one day, Andre Rublev beat Rafael Nadal at Monte Carlo, a tournament he's won 12, 13 times. I've lost count to see those two lose in those two days. How shocking was that for you? Yeah, I'm completely shocked. Uh, I, I think that... Uh, Rafael Nadal losing to one of the young guys in the first clay court tournament of the season. Uh, that I can kind of see if it's somebody like Andre Rublev. But for Novak Djokovic to go out against Dan Evans, uh, who's not a clay court player at all, even though he's got a, a good slice backhand. Uh, but it was interesting to see Novak struggle with uh, the uh, the variety that Evans brought to the court. Um, I would have thought that this would be a, a big, important tournament for Novak Djokovic because he, he needs a little bit of confidence uh, on clay, especially after last year's finals of the French Open against Rafa when he didn't play very well at all. And then to go out against Evans, he beat Yannick Sinner in the first round easily, Novak, and then he went out against Evans. So I'm, yeah, very surprised. Um, Novak uh, looked good the first day and looked horrible the second day. Johnny Levine... Mats Vlander has made comments on numerous occasions about how these guys, and by these guys, I mean Federer, I mean Nadal, I mean Djokovic, to lose to some of these lower-ranked players in some of these tour events, best of three sets, it can happen at any time. Are you convinced that based on this result that this is the beginning of the end of the domination of those three players in particular, or do we need to see these types of results in major championships when these are best of five set matches? It's a great question. I I do think that what it shows you, a guy like Dan Evans, who's probably, you know, he's top 30, 25, 28 in the world, beating a guy like Novak Djokovic in in a tournament that's not a slam. Again, I just think it reiterates to the tennis world and to the people that watch tennis how how amazing the level of tennis is for guys that are 20, 30 in the world. And that on a given day, they can beat anyone in the world. And that's the depth of tennis. When you talk about, is it a changing of the guard? Is it going to take the slams? I remember we had Yvonne Lendl on last summer. And Yvonne was big on the difference between this next group of guys winning slams and, and, and taking out the big three. 
is, is a huge difference between the regular tournaments because of the best of five. And the fact that the, the big three have played so many slams and have played so many five set matches that they have the experience, they have the edge, they, 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 they've been there so many times and these young guys have not played that many five set matches. And so the key really of the changing of the guard is going to see it in the slams and, and see what, whether these guys can take these top three guys out um, in a best of five match. And I think that's really going to be when we see the changing of the guard is when, when they, when they win these slams and beat the top three guys in, in those events. Matt's a guy that we've enjoyed talking about on this show. Uh, he goes back to your era of tennis and then a, a little bit uh, later on into that before he won his first major in 97, and that's Patrick Rafter. And he's going to be joining us later in the show. We're very excited to talk to him. But one of the things that Rafter was so good about was keeping the great players off balance. And we're going to talk to Patrick about his matches against Pete Sampras and his matches against Andre Agassi. And it seems like Dan Evans in that match against Novak Djokovic took a lot from the rafter playbook in terms of getting to the net, short chip backhands, a lot of the types of things that we saw from rafter that made the great players in the game at the time uncomfortable. Is it safe to say that, that Evans employed some of those tactics as well? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think just the, the fact that he uh, posed a threat, uh, if Novak hit anything short, he would come to the net, Dan Evans. Uh, he would sort of give him junk balls uh, especially to the Djokovic backhand, when the courts are slow and you give uh, Novak no pace to work with with his own backhand, which is the greatest two-handed backhand of all time. But when there is no pace, he struggles a little bit to 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 uh, to generate his own power. Um, I mean, Dan Evans. I mean, when Patrick Rafter was playing, there was a few guys like him around. But Dan Evans, there there are very few players that play that kind of tennis. I mean, Roger Federer can and and has in the past, and and will most probably in the future sometimes choose to to play that kind of a style of tennis. Dan Evans does it. I mean, it's it's tough to it's tough to find another one. So I think for Novak, it was, it's a little bit of a surprise. Um, to play against somebody like that. But I think I go back to Johnny's thing about five sets. I think the, the big thing here that these guys have not done, they haven't played Davis Cup. And we played so many five set matches in Davis Cup. The ATP finals had five sets uh, as well for a while. Some of the big finals, the Bercy Paris indoors had five sets. Some of the Masters Series tournaments had five sets in finals. But they just don't play five sets unless it's a major. So it's going to take them a while to get used to playing. And I think that's the, that's the last hope for uh, Roger, Rafa, and Novak is that can they just be strong enough physically? Because we have to remember that Rafa physically fell away against Stefano Tsitsipas at the Australian Open. Uh, and uh, we haven't seen that often, but I'm starting to wonder if that can happen to Rafa even on clay this year. I'm going to go out on the limb and say that if Rafa wins the French Open this year, this is the biggest upset that he has caused in his career. Bigger than when he won the first time. If he can still win it again at 35 years old, whew, I'm completely blown away. And I'm actually then slightly disappointed in the field if they can't take him down this, this, uh, this, this spring. Matt's Vlander never shy about a bold comment or prediction. Johnny Levine, one of the things that you and I have had a lot of fun with is keeping an eye on the players that played in your challenger in, in 2019, which was just innocently enough another challenger on the tour that happened to take place during the second week of Indian Wells. And, and as it would happen, Matteo Berrettini won it. We've alluded to that a lot of times, and we've talked about the fact that Luis Sanego was in that event. Mikhail Kukushkin was in that event. Um, John Millman, we've seen some of the players. And now Dan Evans, you, you reminded me, but also Casper Ruud. We watched him play David Goffin. I want to say it was a Thursday night, seems like a round of 16 match. And we saw some things from the, at the time, 19-year-old Casper Ruud when he lost to Goffin in two tiebreak sets that night. And, and it was actually, I think he lost the first set, as memory serves, on a hindrance call on set point at the end of the first set, which was which was kind of odd. But we're seeing some great things from Kasparud. 
he would beat one of your favorite players in Monte Carlo, Diego Schwartzman, and beat him handily and make an appearance in the semifinals where finally he would run out uh, run out of time against Andre Rublev. But these guys that played in Arizona that year just keep showing up with great results. Yes, Andy Rude. I'm glad you mentioned him. Um, I, I think he's a player to look for at the French Open. He's 22 years old. He's been playing great tennis. This result at, at Monte Carlo is is tremendous. I mean, you know, he's he's already ranked 22nd in the world. So I think we're going to see great things from him. And I, I think we need to watch him at the French Open. He could he could do some damage. The other clay quarter, he didn't have as great of a, a result at um, Monte Carlo. But, Matt, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on Christian Guerin. He is a tremendous, or Guerin, however you pronounce it, um, he's a tremendous clay court player. Uh, he just won the event. I believe it was in maybe Chile in his home country, playing excellent on the dirt. And that's his best surface. I think he could do well at the French, could be a surprise, you know, maybe semifinalist, 24 years old, 22 in the world. Um, great clay quarter. So I think we're going to see some good things out of these two kids. And uh, it'll be interesting at the French Open. Yeah, we'll be. I, he, he, you know, he reminds me, Garin reminds me of uh, David Ferrer a little bit, uh, where they, they clay court uh, might be where they have their best results, but doesn't hit with that much spin, extremely strong, uh, hits the ball well off of both sides. There's so many guys that hit the ball well off of both sides these days. And, and actually, if you look at Kasper Ruud, who obviously uh, we're taking him in in Sweden. We, don't have, we have the Emer brothers, Mikael and Elias, and they're doing okay, my, Mikael especially. But we're taking Kasper Ruud. He's a Scandinavian, uh, so he's from our part of the world. Uh, I know his dad very well, Christian Ruud. He was a, he was a great player in his own time. But Kasper Ruud actually... Uh, he has a slight deficiency on the two-handed backhand, which is weird because that very rarely happens. But the forehand is just incredible. And I was listening to to uh, the commentators on Tennis Channel and, and uh, Jim Courier was calling uh, some of those matches. And, and they were saying that Kasper Ruud's forehand is as big as Nadal's when it comes to the spin and the, the speed of the shot, which uh, is tough to see. Uh, when you watch a right-hander play, because it doesn't look that different from other right-handers. But, yeah, he's tough as nails. He, he's going to be good in five sets. He had a decent French Open uh, last year. I know that. But uh, they're, they're young young guys. Every time they see Rafa Nadal lose, they all go in with a little bit more confidence. They know that time is is uh is it's gonna end at some point and they want to be there they want to be able to say i beat rafael nadal when he was at his best on a clay court i mean that if you come from a small country like norway that would make your career so guys here we are 10 12 minutes into the show maybe it's time to start talking about stefanos tsitsipas who won the thing beats dan evans after evans took out Djokovic and beat him handily took out Andre Rublev in the final, 6-3-6-3 there. So he was dominant. Mats, what are we seeing now from Tsitsipas that probably puts him in the driver's seat, kind of like maybe the way we were looking at Dominique Team in the last couple of years to maybe be the guy that we should look for to start winning majors? Yeah, you know, that's why I think I didn't even didn't even think about him because uh, it's not a surprise. To me, Stefano Tsitsipas is the only guy of the young guys – that have something from the three greats, Roger, Novak, and Rafa. And it's in his demeanor. There is a need for him to win tennis matches that I don't see in the other guys. I mean, Medvedev is a great fighter for sure. Uh, Rublev is a great fighter and a great ball striker. But Tsitsipas, it's like he's obsessed with winning, with becoming better and improving. And it, it doesn't surprise me at all. Uh, but the fact that he's winning a Masters Series on clay, now that that is uh, – the other guys need to watch out because I don't think clay is his best surface. I think that he's a better hardcore player. I think he can learn how to play on every surface. But uh, he, he – I think he's a step ahead of the other guys at least. And this sounds weird. But in his own mind, I think he thinks he's a step ahead of where Medvedev and Zverev and Rublev, where they think they are. And when you watch them play – I mean, he's got every shot in the book. And we do know that Medvedev doesn't volley. Rublev doesn't volley. Uh, Zverev uh, is struggling with his second serve a little bit. But where is Tsitsipas struggling? Nowhere. 
He really isn't. So the backhand is improving. Uh, he believes in himself. Um, I like it. I like watching him uh, on any surface, but uh, he flies around the court. So he also played five sets with Novak last year's French Open. He took out Rafa in five at the Australian Open. So the belief is there. And I think he's the first guy uh, from these young guys to win a major. I really do. Johnny, I want to give Matt's the final say on this subject, but I'm going to give you first crack at this question, and that is, does Rafael Nadal, based on this performance and really kind of getting the racket taken out of his hand by Andre Rublev, is he still the prohibitive favorite in your mind to win the French Open? Well, we had this conversation last summer, and I did go with Nadal. That's right. And I am going to uh, say that someone has got to unseat this champion because that center court is his home. I think it's going to be different when he gets there. I think the intimidation factor is is big. I think players know that this is Rafa's domain, and he's won it 13 times. So he's going to get a, you know some wins just just based on that. And he did get overpowered, it seemed like, by by Rublev. I mean, it was crazy. I mean, Rublev just hit the heck out of the ball and hit him right off the court. I, I don't know that he can do that again. I'm going to go back to the five sets. You know, Jimmy Connors' famous line, as you know, about Nadal, he plays like he's broke, and he's sure going to do that at the French Open. He's not going to let someone get that, that title from him very easily. So I, I'm going with Nadal again. Before I let you go on this one, Matt, my question to lead you into your answer is besides the best of five set format, is there any other major difference between the atmosphere and the speed of the court and, and what you would have playing at Monte Carlo, which I'm sure you've played on center court there a number of times. Is there a difference in the style of play on a court in Monte Carlo versus at Roland Garros? Well, there is a difference in temperature. Okay. Uh, Monte Carlo uh, Country Club is right, uh, you know, right on the ocean. So there's humidity there. It's obviously early in the season. I mean, I've played the Monte Carlo tournament. I'm sure, Johnny, you have too. And we've had snow uh, coming. And, uh, and of course, it wouldn't, it wouldn't stay. But, so I think that the conditions are not great in Monte Carlo. They've never been for Nadal. Somehow he's managed to win 11 times anyway. But I, I think that this is going to be a tough French Open. Now, I'm, I'm actually nearly more interested in, in knowing when Rafa Nadal hangs his rackets up, and I'm sure that he'll quit and retire at the French Open, will they name the Philippe Chatrier the Rafael Nadal center court? Because that's what they should do. Even though he's not French, I feel like he really deserves to have that court named after him. Not as long as he's playing and winning on it, but when he's retired, I really think he deserves because he's put that tournament seriously on the map. Uh, and... Um, it's something we all look forward to maybe more than any other Grand Slam because is Rafa going to win again? And I'm going to go against Johnny again. You were right the last time, Johnny. Uh, Rafa won the French Open in September, which I thought was too cold. And uh, I think he's not winning in May, June. I think that the young guys are going to take him out. But I love to be wrong when it comes to Rafa Nadal. I love the way he plays and uh, he's a great guy. So wish him good luck. But he can't win another one there because then Novak Djokovic is three behind again. So, again, it's, we're, we're in this year when every major counts towards history. Well, if they're going to name Philippe Chautrier court after Rafael Nadal, it would stand a reason why not just name every center court of every clay court tournament in the world after Rafael Nadal because the fact of the matter is the guys won them all 10 times or more before we go guys. And we're so excited that we're going to be having Patrick Grafter joining us on the show uh, a little bit later, but let's get back to Astra Sharma unseated Australian player, 25 years of age winning in Charleston coming back from a set down in the final against Ans Jabour, who's one of the big time sluggers on the women's tour right now and I know Matt's that match intrigued you a lot and that you were very impressed with I would say the young Aussie although at age 25 you really don't necessarily call a 25 year old on the tour necessarily young but it just seems like she's just entering her prime by winning her first singles title on the tour and beating Ange Jabour 
uh, in the process. Yeah, it seemed like um, Sharma, it's taken her a few years. And when you watch her play, I guess you can you realize she, she doesn't have maybe as much power as some of the other women. And she's gotten a little stronger. She's a great athlete. She moves incredibly well. Uh, and uh, it's just great to see somebody that brings a little bit of variety to the game. It's great to see new faces. And it's great for an Australian to uh, to win a tournament apart from Ash Barty because obviously tennis in Australia is a big sport and they need the names uh, for their own Australian Open. So I am a big fan of Astra Sharma, but I have to say, Ons Jabur, she's a magician out there and uh, she was really tired and she let that final slip. But but she is dangerous as well at the French Open, Ons Jabur. I just love saying the name Astra Sharma. She sounds like if she wasn't a tennis player, she should be on like the Avengers or something like that. Johnny, before we go, you always like to give us the report on the Challenger Tour, and I know you've got some interesting results there. What have you got from the guys that are scratching and clawing their way into these main draws of these bigger tournaments? Well, we just had the Orlando Challenger, and we had Dennis Kudla, the American 28, 29 years old. I believe his ranking is around 120. He's been as high as definitely in the top 70. He ended up playing in the finals against Jensen Brooksby, a young American who's about 20 years old, who won Kalamazoo a couple of years ago and beat Nakashima in the finals. And he actually beat Thomas Burdick when he got the wild card into the U.S. Open. So he can play. He won the South African Challenger a few weeks back. So he's won his last two challengers. He is going to be, could do well at the French as well. If he gets in the qualities and maybe qualifies, I don't know if he get a wild card. The other young guy, uh, Matt's probably knows quite well is Carlos Alcaraz. He's from Spain. He's 119 in the world, 17 year old kid. They're saying that he could be, you know, the next great champion out of Spain. And so I think we need to look for these couple young guys. There's some great young guys out there, fun to watch. Even Nakashima at 20 is a great player, has done great on the on the uh, challenger circuit, and now he's getting some results in ATP tournaments. Matt, what tell tell us about Alcaraz real quick? Yeah, he's he's really good, um, but you know what? Spain is struggling. They're really struggling with young players, so they need somebody to come up. And, and I mean, Pablo Carreño Busta was supposed to fill the void when Rafa Nadal is out of there, but he's not really going to do that. So they actually need uh, need players. And uh, Jaime Munar is another guy, but Alcaraz is, is a good player. Johnny, I want to ask you a question, though, uh, about Denis Kudla, the style of play. You said that he's good on faster courts. What is, what is that? He doesn't have a big serve. Um, he doesn't hit winners from, from anywhere, but he loves to grass at Wimbledon. I think you liked faster courts too, even though you didn't have a big serve. And, and for me, who, who I think I play the same way, I hate faster courts because I didn't have a big serve. What, what was the, the mindset of somebody that doesn't have a big serve? Why do they do well on faster courts? Because the serve is a weapon on any surface? Because maybe club players can can take it, you know, think about this a little bit because we always think smaller guy doesn't hit the ball hard, must be better on slow courts. But in the pros, that's actually not necessarily always true. Well, before we check out, Matt makes the point that the Spaniards are struggling. Maybe the Italians are the new Spaniards out of Europe because they are certainly not struggling. So um, when we come back, we're going to talk to a Scottish tennis pro by the name of Mark Milne, and he is proposing a new scoring system. He calls it 30-30 tennis. I think you'll find it very intriguing, but you definitely want to stick around for the exclusive with Patrick Grafter, uh, a guy's guy, a ladies' man, and one of the great players in the history of our sport, certainly one of the most watchable players that we've ever seen. Matt Vlander has always described him as one of the clev- more clever serve and volleyers that we've ever seen. So we're going to be very excited to get caught up with the great Patrick Grafter. Mark Milne is next. You're listening to KickServeRadio.com. We are a part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, and there's so much more to come, so don't go away. I am joined by Squad Pod's head of strategy, Jenny Jerome. And Jenny, I have to ask you this question. There are so many new communication platforms and people are trying to accentuate privacy for obvious reasons. People are trying to stay out of trouble on social media. But why Squad Pod? Squad Pod was built on privacy. 
So we were originally built for businesses, but we're finding that a lot of people are using us on college campuses because a student can say something, you know, kids being kids, and all of a sudden that's now come back, taken out of context, and it just bites them in the tuchus, and it interferes with their job recruitment. It can interfere with them even getting into college, getting into grad schools. So we're used a lot, and we have a really good focus whenever you're dealing with kids being kids, but also whenever you're dealing on the sports side with intramural sports or any type of team communication that you want to have between you and your players. So keeping our college youth out of trouble when it's time to enter the real world and protecting proprietary intellectual properties and everything in between is something that really can be protected by Squad Pod. Exactly. Another thing, Andy, that's important is you hear a lot about bullying. You hear a lot about stalking, things like that on social media. Well, with Squad Pod, because it's closed architecture, the people that you have in your squad, the people that you invite onto this app are only the people that you invite to the squad. So you're actually communicating with the people that you choose to have and that you choose to engage with. So it cuts down a lot on the bullying and things like that, because if somebody does get a little untoward, let's say on the app, you can just remove them and say, no, that kind of conversation does not belong on my team. Lots of advantages. She's Jenny Jerome. She is head of strategy at SquadPod. Jenny, thanks so much for joining us. Check it out. It's squadpod.com. Go check it out right now. Welcome back, everybody. KickServeRadio.com, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. And the show takes us out of ways. I'm going to go out to Arbroath, Scotland, where I'm going to chat with Mark Milne, who is the creator of 3030 Tennis. And many of you have heard about some of the different scoring formats that tennis has tried to introduce to speed up the game, to make it more fan-friendly, to be able to see more tennis. We've seen the fast-four approach. We've seen uh, no-ad scoring in the doubles in particular with 10-point super tie breaks in lieu of third sets. And Mark has yet another alternative, which is a very interesting scoring system. First of all, Mark, welcome to kickserveradio.com and talk to us about where this idea came from and what you've done with it so far. Hi, hi, Andy. Yes, uh, thanks very much for for having me on and yeah, giving me the opportunity to speak about thirty thirty tennis. Yeah, it's it's actually a very very simple idea and it's actually nothing new. It's an idea to speed up tennis and it's an alternative format to really fast four and the use of the match tie breaks. All that's different is that instead of games starting at love all, you start games at thirty all. And the reason it's been called 30-30 is if you write down 30-all as 30-30, when you read that out, it reads 30-30. So it's been branded 30-30 tennis. I was looking for an option to play indoors for one hour and try and get a best of three sets match played. Now, that typically, if you're using traditional tennis, that's not going to happen. You'll run out of time. If you use fast four, we all know that that's playing sets to four games. You don't play any advantage points. You don't play any lets. There's a tie break at three all. I wasn't so keen on that. I just didn't feel it felt like tennis. So, yeah, hence 30-30 was born. The only other small changes are, obviously, if you start the game at 30 all, a game could be over in two points. If someone hits two big serves that are not returned, the game's over. So if you're changing ends as per normal traditional tennis, you end up changing ends too often and too quickly. So what I've done is to combat that is doubled it up. You, you still serve alternatively, but you play two games, change ends, and then you play four games, change ends, and so on till the end of the set. So you're actually changing ends after two games, six games, and 10 games. And what that does, it actually cuts down the number of change of ends during a set by a factor of two. So that actually makes your time spent on court a bit more efficient as well. That's the two main differences. The last one is that if a set goes to six games all, rather than playing the traditional tiebreak to seven points, the ITF now have in their Appendix 5 the alternative rules 
the nine-point tie-break. They call that the short-set tie-break. It's basically a best of nine points. The first player to get to five points wins the tie-break and wins the set. So at six games all, when you're playing a set of 30-30 tennis, you play the short-set tie-break. So that's it in a nutshell. All right, let me ask you this, Mark, because you're out there in Scotland, which means that you are pretty connected, at least to some extent, to the Murray family. I mean, that's obviously the first family of Scottish tennis. And the last time we got together when we talked, you did throw Judy Murray's name into the conversation. What has the feedback been from Judy and or Andy or Jamie Murray with regard to this scoring system? Yeah, no, that's that's correct. When I came up with the idea, I thought, right, I really want to get somebody to try it. Who's the best person? And yeah, Judy Murray is obviously a big figure in Scottish tennis. So I managed to get in touch with her. So we had a few conversations. She she told me that obviously being a coach, she has used this format, but basically just for fun, you know, the last 10 minutes of a coaching session or something, you can use it for fun. So she wished me good luck with it, basically, put me on to the ITF. And yeah, the, the programme has grown from then. So yeah, initial chat with Judy Murray, contacted Jamie Murray. I, I'm sure Andy Murray will know of it, basically. Uh, I've been contacting everybody and anybody, letting them know about this format. But as of yet, no, they're, they're being very non-committal, basically, at the moment. The, the scoring system is 30-30 tennis. The creator is Mark Milne. It's an alternative scoring system to maintain the integrity of traditional scoring in tennis, but to speed the matches up to create more big points. I've got to believe that that hitting that first serve at 30-all in a game, you want to win that first point. So, Mark, I love the idea. I wish you luck with it. And before I let you go, on the day that we're recording this, you are extremely excited about uh, the day that UK professional tennis has had because as we speak, uh, Daniel Evans, who's one of the top players from the UK, has just pulled off an amazing upset in Monte Carlo by taking out the world number one, Novak Djokovic. Talk a little bit about how excited you are about that result. It's, it's a fantastic result for Dan Evans. I, I was watching it on the Amazon Prime channel this afternoon he, he probably played the best match of his life today and and one amazing statistic was that he is only the second British player to have beaten a world number one on clay ever I, I, I can't remember who they said the other player was but yeah Djokovic is obviously number one Evans is British it's on clay it's the most fantastic result for Dan Evans. He he is knuckled down and, and is a very, very talented player. He is English and I'm Scottish, but when we speak about tennis, it's UK. Andy Murray, Scottish, but he is UK. He's a great British player. We we compete as Great Britain in tennis. So yeah, very, very excited and fantastic for Dan Evans. Brilliant. Well, your your performance today on our show, Mark, was also top-notch. And I want to thank you for all that you're doing for the sport of tennis. I want to thank you for bringing just a brilliant Scottish accent to our show because it always adds a little bit to the uh, to the festivities to be able to talk to people from all over the world. And this has been a real treat for us. So thank you very much and the best of luck to you with 3030 Tennis. Yeah, fantastic, Andy. Appreciate it. Thanks very much. All right. Thanks so much, Mark. We appreciate it. And don't go away, everybody, because as promised, when we come back, we are joined by the great Patrick Rafter. More of KickServeRadio.com right after this. Nestled in the spectacular Sun Valley area in Haley, Idaho, Matt's V-Lander Tennis allows athletes like you and me to train inside so that we can excel outside. Former number one and seven-time, yep, that's right, seven-time Grand Slam champion, Matt Spielander, now owns Gravity Fitness and Tennis. And let me tell you, Gravity is the premier fitness and tennis club in the Sun Valley area. They have it all, including indoor tennis, lots of high-quality training equipment in a clean and bright, spacious workout area. They have yoga and Pilates, as well as hydro options. They also have martial arts and something I had never seen before, TRX suspension training. But most importantly, let's talk about the tennis. 
you will be trained by one of the all-time greats in the sport of tennis. Time on court with Mats is an amazing experience, one I assure you you will never forget. After my clinic with Mats, every time I step on the court, I hear that focused intensity in that charming Swedish accent, reminding me of all the techniques that improve my game and get results. So grab your family, your friends, or the whole tennis team and head out to Haley, Idaho for a tennis experience of a lifetime. Go to MatsVLenderTennis.com to find out what's in store for you when you get to Gravity Fitness and Tennis in beautiful Haley, Idaho. Welcome back, everybody. KickServeRadio.com, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. And as promised, we are now joined by two-time U.S. Open champion Patrick Rafter, also a singles finalist at Wimbledon a couple of times, 11 singles titles to his credit, number one in the world in 1999. Patrick, it is a real treat to have you on board with us with KickServeRadio.com. Welcome. Oh, good to be here, guys. And uh, I don't get to speak much tennis anymore um obviously around the aussie open that's about it but uh it's, it's always a pleasure to speak to you guys and speak to matt's well let me ask you this question because um you obviously went through your your tennis career uh davis cup captain gq cover guy ma- uh, underwear model you've had lots of different components to your career patrick but what's going on nowadays with you yeah, I finished tennis in 2001 and I just uh, decided to have a family. So that was um, one of the big things in my life is, is having a completely different style of life, which I've really enjoyed. And I now live on 70 acres outside a little country town called Byron Bay. And I try to surf as much as I can. I play a bit of golf if I can. But predominantly, I, I work on the property, I, um, restoring the the landscape to how it used to be it was called the big scrub which is a big environmental area where they had a massive forest here so that was all torn down for for farming and i've started to re re rainforest the property it's, uh, and also uh, put a lot of koala trees in there put in about five thousand koala trees to hopefully bring them back to the area where they are here so uh, just a little sanctuary for them and just things like that love it love life love getting out doing some farming mowing the lawns so, Pat, uh, first of all, thank you uh, for being with us. It's, it's so nice of you. So where the, the competitive Pat Rafter, where do you t- who do you take that out on when you're sitting in your little tractor and you're digging holes at home and you're fixing things? I mean, or, or the, the competitor that was you as a tennis player, is that not there anymore? I don't think it's certainly not there as much um, as it used to be. I do get a little bit of it when I play a bit of golf. And I also train with a couple of, um, uh, on a Tuesday and Thursday, I run like a, like a fitness workout and I have about 12 blokes come and we'd work on, on the beach. So that gets pretty competitive. Um, it's really physical and it gets to some pretty aggressive sort of games, but that's a lot of fun with a good bunch of blokes. But I don't think I've got that much anymore, Matt. You know, one of my highlights is actually sitting on the uh, on the tractor or jumping in the bobcat, putting on my headphones and listening to a great pop- podcast or, or an audio book. I mean, that is four hours of bliss. I love it. Hopefully, Patrick, this little podcast that we're doing is one that you'll uh, that you'll catch later on. Now, we want to talk to you about some of the great highlights from your career, the U.S. Opens, the wins over Pete and Andre back in the day. But I was talking to one of your old blokes from the old days, Brett Zushner, and he sort of reckons that it was a match against Cedric Pialine in Davis Cup that he really felt like went a long way toward giving you the confidence to feel like you could actually accomplish some of the great things that you eventually accomplished in becoming the number one player in the world. Brett Zushner, you have thrown a name right from the past there. <laughs> yeah. Now, that was um, that was pretty significant, actually. I was pretty low on confidence. I've been training pretty hard. I got to 20 in the world in 94 and just sort of stumbled around, didn't know what I was doing, still trying to be a player. I was a little scrappy, um, worked really hard in 96 and then 97, and that consolidated a really good year. And then that match against Pialino, I was two sets of love down. And then I was working with John Newcomb and Tony Roach in the Davis Cup. It was a Davis Cup match, actually. And I was able to claw my way back from two sets of love down. 
and that just gave me a bit of confidence. And I think New- John Newcomb and Tony Roach saw that I had the potential there. I just didn't know how, and, and 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 I couldn't see it. So I just needed that bit of a kick up the bum to get me over the line, and that was certainly a significant mental moment for me. Uh, Pat, I don't know if you remember, but I certainly remember it because we played. Uh, in Key Biscayne one year and uh, I sort of just come back to tour and my coach will say, oh, but Pat, Pat Rafter, he slaps the ball as hard as he can on both sides. And um, and I won. I don't know what, what you were doing that day, but and, and I didn't know you at all. And no one's ever said this to me. And, and you have to remember, I, I played with John McEnroe, Jimmy Connors, Ivan Lendl. Of course, they wouldn't. But after the match, you said to me, thanks for the lesson, mate. Uh, and like, oh, my God, I can't. What a great guy, nice guy. And I did play really well, uh, but uh, you kept coming in. And I'm like, okay, if you get that close to the net, Pat, I'm going to lob you nearly every single time. So uh, now in the last few months since we started this podcast, I've been telling Andy um, that today's players, when they serve in volley, they they like to sort of just kick the serve in, run to the net. And and it's more about the score line, serving and volleying at the right score. And I'm like, no, no, no. Serving and volleying, you have to be smart. Stefan Edberg was, and I always bring you up as being a really smart serve and volleyer because you didn't hit that many aces. Pete Sampras is such a big serve. We didn't have to worry about it. What, 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 what was it that you um, thought about so much when you served? Was it placement? Was it power? What was it that made you such a smart serve and volleyer? Because I can serve and volley, but I am dumb as a lamppost when I try. Oh, that's so untrue. I've never had a bigger lesson in my life than playing Mats Willander. I think it was 95, Mats. It could have been 96. Because the reason I remember this quite well is because I was defending semifinals. So I was I needed the points. And, um, and I thought, Mats Willander, not bad. You know, like he, he's, he's, not coming, he's coming back. I should be fine here. I lost 6-2, 6-2. I have ne- and I was just telling the story just yesterday at my men's group workout thing. I've never been passed and lobbed more in my life. Matt's was serving at about 155 kilometres an hour. I tip charged every single one of his first serves and I thought I was in great position and it was a joke. So anyway, that was just quickly on that. Um, I think I nearly tried to kill the umpire. I was trying to take it out and everyone except Matt's. That was a great lesson. It really was. Now, outside of that, I like to think that I tried to work out a match now when when you play when you serve and volley and you don't have the biggest serve you're trying to construct a ball that gets out of the hitting zone of your returner which then allows them which then allows you to get a volley effectively that's what you want to do you want to control the net once you could control the net you hope to think that you can put a good volley in the corner so first of all first job to get the hitting the ball out of the middle of the racket of the returner so by doing a big kick serve and faking mixing it up mixing your serve up changing your ball toss around so they're not reading that. And then when I'm playing a match, I always found the first few games a little awkward because I'm trying to find the weakness in a player. And every now and then you don't find the player, uh, the, that weakness uh, in, in, the, in the guys returning. Um, so, so, for instance, the day I played due match, I actually found no weakness anywhere and it's very, very frustrating. So that, 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 that can be sometimes a mental block when you're playing. But the whole idea is to say, okay, now are they, I'll try a forehand body serve. I'll try a backhand body serve. I'll do a kick serve down the tee. I'll do a flat serve down the tee. I'll, I'll do a fake kicker here. It's all about mixing the serve up again, as um, I was telling you, that it, it's about trying to get them uncomfortable at returning. So whenever I felt like I had a volley, I felt like I controlled the point. So that's, that's the thinking of a serve volleyer um, in, in terms of that, uh, of serving is continually mixing it up, finding the weakness, exploiting it hopefully at the right time. Hopefully they don't read it. I always thought that when Rafa Nadal came around and he started beating Roger Federer, we all were, oh, well, obviously, that's if you're going to build a tennis player that could beat Roger Federer, make him lefty so he can spin it high with his forehand cross court to Federer. But I always had this feeling that, but you can serve and volley against Federer. He can't pass that well on the backhand side. And I, but I never, no one really ever did that I that I could remember. And I looked at this. You are three and zero against the great Roger Federer, uh, Pat. What, what on earth? I mean, I know you're older than him, but but what, what happened there? What what was it that just clicked against the greatest player of all time? 
you were Ali certainly wasn't the greatest player of all time when I played in the 80s. As you said, I was a whole <laughs> 10 years older than him. <laughs> so the poor bugger was young. You know, he was 17 and 19 when I played him. So he, um, he, he was just coming into his own. He was developing as a player. So he was half the player he was these now. So in 2001, Pat, you were a part of the, a, a historic Wimbledon final against Goran Ivanisevic. And, and he was playing on a Monday... And the atmosphere was the most uh, incredible that I've ever experienced watching a Wimbledon final because I obviously was never in one myself. Uh, what was that like? Uh, they, they, I think they allowed ground pass tickets to sit anywhere and they allowed flags inside and, and it was just not a tennis atmosphere. It was more like a, a, a team sport, a rugby or a, a soccer crowd. Tell, tell us how that was. It seemed amazing. Yeah, well... I mean, Matt, you summed it up really well, mate. The the atmosphere was crazy. It was all the people waiting in line for free tickets. Most of them were Aussies. There's a lot of Aussies in London. And Goran had a massive fan base uh, over there as well. I do remember finishing my practice hit at 12 o'clock. Oh, no, 11 o'clock, 10.30 to 11. And the match started at 12 o'clock. And the crowd rushed through the gates for free tickets from free seats. And they just ran. And I remember getting off the court, running back to the locker room, trying and beating them. Now, the match itself was unbelievable. I served first. I remember that. But I was so nervous. And I probably shouldn't have served first. But I did. Uh, got off to a bad start, lost my opening serve. And then the match sort of settled in from there. And it wasn't the prettiest match. But in terms of atmosphere, it was one of the best matches I've ever played in. And then when it got really close in the fifth set, I had a little sneaking opportunity at Love 30 on Goran serve at 5-4 in the fifth. And he came up with a couple of really surprising serves, uh, two big second serves down to my forehand side, deep in the corners. And he just sort of caught me off guard. And, you know, I take, I take a hat off to him. He, he did something unexpected. And that's what you've got to do in big situations. And Goran was too good in the end, unfortunately, because my dream was Wimbledon. Well, you got to two finals. And Patrick, before we let you go, and if Matt, if you have anything else, but I'd like to ask, you know, the generation of Australian tennis players that I grew up with, Patrick, being a little older than you guys, were the Lavers and the Nukes and 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 the Davos and the Rosewalls and 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 that that bunch. And then you guys came along and sort of maintained that tradition of very proud, very honorable Aussie tennis players. And then suddenly we we come into uh, a generation with as talented as I've ever seen Nick Kyrgios, but Bernard Tomic and some of these guys that really sort of veered, you know, you have to admit somewhat off course from what we had come to expect from the Australian tennis tradition. How frustrating was that for you? And has it been for you to watch? I was horrible. I had to deal with it during Davis cup. I had to deal with it through doing a job called player performance at the Australian open. Um, it was it was really frustrating, and one of the most disappointing things that I've ever read and saw was what Nick said to Matt Swalander. I mean, it's just just so disrespectful and, and so disgusting that I don't even know where to go with it. I'm so mad at it. So um, I don't have to deal with it anymore, and I don't really care. But when I get asked a question, I'm not going to sit and defend these guys. It's just unacceptable. And then what about a guy like Tanasi Kokonakis? I mean, the poor guy, he's such a talented player. We haven't seen enough of him because of all of the injuries. Is is he to some extent a little bit more to your liking as a player and as a kid? Yeah, terrific kid. Tries his hardest. He's he's had a tough tough life as well, like a bit of a tough upbringing, and he's um, he's come through the other side. He's he's terrific. So I've got a lot of time for um, Alex Dimonor. Um, I just think he's such a great kid and. Thanasi's and Thanasi's, um, yeah, dealing with injuries all the time. So I want to see Thanasi get back up. He can really play. He's got a massive forehand. Um, we'll see how he goes. I know he's back on the court now. Yeah. So to me, Thanasi and and um, and uh, Alex Dimonor, and then then you've got guys like Johnny Norman having a crack and um, uh, Jordan Thompson. But you know, the the one who's doing pretty well right now is is probably Alex Dimonor. So. I um, I hope he can keep it going because he's great for the game. Patrick, a couple of the women players we saw, Astra Sharma just win an event, her first WTA Tour win. But Ash Barty, to get to the number one in the world, and many people have compared her style of game favorably to yours as well as her persona on court. You know, we talk about the, you know, the current generation of male players 
and maybe where they have been to some extent a, a bit of a disappointment. But you couldn't say that about Ash Barty either on or off the court. Uh, no, no, no. Uh, well, listen, the problem, the difference between Ash and I is that she's got a forehand. <laughs> so she, she's a terrific girl, Ash, and she can't volley. She doesn't, she doesn't do a lot of it. Um, she doesn't come to the net that much, but she's just done incredibly well. She's got really good retrieval skills. All the best players in the world know how to get that backhand, you know, when you're caught in a corner and making a really good uh, shot off it and making the player play. Another great shot. Matt's when Ender did it fantastically, you know that. And and Ash Barty does that really well. All the top players have that ability to make the player play another shot. So that's where Ash's big strength is. And Ash, Ash for Sharma, I haven't seen a lot of. I've seen her play a little bit. I saw her play at the Aussie Open. She's another great girl. The the women are, are doing pretty well in Australia, and obviously Ash being number one is fantastic. I've got a lot of time for Ash. She's a good mate of mine. I saw Ash when she was really young. She was a tiny little girl and um, just seeing her develop and come along as a player. She uh, took the time off the game when she needed to, when she was about 16 years old. She's a great athlete and she came back and now she's number one. So she's played her hand really well in the development of her career. Well, Patrick, all I can say is we really appreciate you taking the time to join us and hopefully they actually get internet down in Australia where you live and we won't have some of these audio they're, issues. They're saying 2023. I can't <laughs> 2023. Right yeah. now we're talking to Patrick on, 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 on two cups and a string. Um, but even with that, we really appreciate it. Patrick, I want to thank Brett Zushner for giving me a little bit of intel from the old days. And uh, you've always been just such an unbelievable ambassador for our sport. As we've said before many times when we've been talking about you, we like to talk about you on this show a lot. You know, a ladies' man, a guy's guy, and uh, and and you do not disappoint. You tell it like it is. And and again, I know um, Matt's and I were super excited to to be able to talk to you today. So thank you. Uh, always a pleasure. And Matt's, you are unfortunately for me, your name is not thrown around as one of the greats of all time. You certainly are, mate. And it's always I'm always humble to talk to you, mate. Thank you, Pat. Yes, yeah, great. Thank you so much. And uh, we will see you soon, hopefully. Give my best to the family. Don't worry, Patrick. He reminds us every time about being one of the greats of all time. So we, we hear that. <laughs> He's the great Patrick Rafter for Andy Zoden, the great Matt Vlander, two-time Longhorn All-American Johnny Levine. This has been KickServeRadio.com, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, and we'll be back real soon. <laughs>